York. This is Democracy Now! I'm so upset that according to the new decree of the Taliban, no women can continue their duties and activities as part of the society. In this situation, that women have no place in Afghan society is so disappointing. In Afghanistan, pressure is growing on the Taliban to reverse a ban on women going to college or working with non-governmental organizations. We'll speak with Jan Egland of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's in Kabul, where he met with Taliban members in an effort to reverse the ban. Then we look at a new investigation into how CIA-backed death squads killed hundreds of Afghan civilians in nighttime raids. It is our commander who gives us information. We just have the shooting order. We'll speak to an Afghan reporter who returned to Afghanistan to research the murders of her mother and sister nearly 30 years earlier. While there, she stumbled on the CIA-backed zero units that were conducting the night raids. And we'll go to California, where the death toll's risen to 19 as heavy storms and flooding continue to devastate much of the state. I think we're definitely at a point now where we can see the the devastating impacts that these uh, first few storms have caused in Ventura County. We know that there is more rain on the way, which means that we're going to have to continue to to prepare. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's defense ministry has appointed a new commander to lead its forces in Ukraine in the latest shakeup of Russia's military command structure in the wake of devastating battlefield losses. Russian Army General Valery Gerasimov replaces Sergei Sorovkin, who will be demoted after just three months as commander. Gerasimov played key roles in Russia's seizure of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014 and helped lead Russian forces in Syria, supporting President Bashar al-Assad. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine denied claims that Russian forces led by Wagner Group mercenaries have seized control of the eastern city of Solidar, where Russia claims to have killed about 500 Ukrainian soldiers. In Washington, D.C., protesters gathered outside the White House Wednesday to call on President Biden to close the prison at the U.S. naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Demonstrators wore orange jumpsuits and black hoods over their heads, marking the 21st anniversary of the reopening of the notorious prison to house hundreds of Muslim men and boys who were captured overseas and handed over to the U.S., Thirty-five men remain imprisoned at Guantanamo today. In an open letter to President Biden, the ACLU, the Center for Constitutional Rights, and over 150 other groups wrote, quote, The Guantanamo detention facility was designed specifically to evade legal constraints, and Bush administration officials incubated torture there. Guantanamo continues to cause escalating and profound damage to the aging and increasingly ill men still detained indefinitely. They are most without charge and none having received a fair trial, they wrote. In other news from the nation's capital, members of the group Code Pink disrupted a Brookings Institute defense policy talk with Congressmember Adam Smith Wednesday to call for a diplomatic end to the Ukraine war. Democrats have to step forward, have to put the pressure on the Biden administration and say we need negotiations, not more war. The real security, we don't have 
Alabama's Republican attorney general said Wednesday pregnant people could be criminally prosecuted if they take medication to terminate a pregnancy. His comments came just days after the Food and Drug Administration announced retail and mail-order pharmacies can now sell the abortion pill, mefepristone, directly to patients with a prescription. Medication abortions account for more than half of all U.S. abortions. On Capitol Hill, the Republican-led House Wednesday approved legislation that would require reproductive care providers to work to preserve the life of the infant born after a failed attempt at an abortion, a situation that's exceedingly rare. House Republicans also approved a resolution condemning what they called attacks on anti-abortion groups and churches. Neither piece of legislation is expected to advance in the Democratic-controlled Senate. Here in New York, dozens of Republican Party officials called publicly Wednesday for newly elected Congress member George Santos to resign. Santos won November's election to represent New York's third congressional district in Queens and Long Island after fabricating large portions of his resume and life history. This is Nassau County Republican Committee Chairman Joseph Cairo. He has no place in the Nassau County Republican Committee nor should he serve in public service, nor as an elected official. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. George Santos has steadfastly refused to resign. He was confronted by reporters on Capitol Hill Wednesday. Congressman Santos, will you resign? I will not. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday rejected calls that he take action against Santos, saying voters would have another chance two years from now to elect a new representative. America today, you're innocent to proven guilty. So just because somebody doesn't like the press you have, it's not me that can have can oversay what the voters say. The, the voters are the power. The voters made the decision, and he has a right to serve. Nope. If there is something that rises to the occasion that he did something wrong, then we'll deal with that at that time. House Speaker McCarthy also signaled Santos remains eligible to serve on House committees. His defense of Santos came after he confirmed that three prominent Democratic Congress members, Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell and Ilhan Omar, would be barred from serving on House committees. Congresswoman Omar said she believes McCarthy singled her out over her religious faith, telling HuffPost, quote, I do not actually think that he has a reason outside of me being Muslim and thinking I should not be, she said. Illinois' Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed legislation this week banning military-style assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Pritzker said on Twitter, quote, I'm tired of living in a world where a mass shooting needs a title so you know which one we're referring to. The White House welcomed the news Wednesday. The president continues to urge other states to to join uh, California, New Jersey, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Delaware, Washington, D.C., and now Illinois uh, to ban assault weapons at the state level to save lives. In another win for gun control advocates, the U.S. Supreme Court left in place for now a New York law that restricts guns in many public places. The law was enacted following a June Supreme Court ruling that struck down a New York law limiting the carrying of concealed handguns outside the home. 
In Afghanistan, the Islamic State claimed responsibility for an explosion that killed at least five people near the foreign ministry. Wednesday, dozens more were injured. It was the second major attack in Kabul since the start of 2023. After headlines, we'll go to Afghanistan to speak with the head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Egland. Israeli forces shot and killed a Palestinian man as he was standing on the roof of his own home in occupied East Jerusalem. The killing came during a raid on the Kalangia refugee camp. Samir Aslan was 41 years old, father of eight. He was the third Palestinian to be killed by Israeli forces in under 24 hours, following the deaths of 21-year-old Ahmed Abu Jnaid and 19-year-old Sanad Mohammed Smasra in the occupied West Bank. Israel's killed at least seven Palestinians since the start of the year, including three children. In Peru, the death toll from anti-government protests has risen to 48 following the ouster and arrest of leftist former President Pedro Castillo last month. Health officials said 37 civilians and six police officers were injured Wednesday after fresh classes erupted in the city of Cusco. Meanwhile, thousands of people in the city of Juliaca held a mass funeral procession for 17 people killed Monday after security forces opened fire on protesters calling on Castillo's successor, Dina Boluarte, to resign. Among the dead was 17-year-old Yamileth Arequipa, a psychology student and volunteer at a shelter for abandoned animals who was fatally shot in the abdomen. Her mother spoke to reporters Wednesday. The assassin, Dina, why doesn't she have blood on her face? My young daughter had such a bright future ahead. She wanted to visit many countries. She was a psychologist. In Mexico, journalists in the southern state of Guerrero rallied Wednesday to demand the release of three of their colleagues who were kidnapped in late December. Jesus Pinto Alegre, Fernando Moreno Villegas, and Alan Garcia Aguilar work for the outlet Escenario Calentano. In a video posted to social media, two of the journalists can be seen with their hands and feet chained. Meanwhile, authorities in Mexico City arrested 11 people in connection with the attempted assassination of prominent television and radio host Ciro Gomez-Leva in a drive-by shooting December 15th. In climate news, the United Arab Emirates, the United Arab Emirates has named the CEO of one of the world's biggest oil companies to preside over the COP28 United Nations Climate Summit when it convenes in Dubai later this year. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber heads the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Responding to his appointment, the anti-poverty charity Action Aid said, quote, this appointment goes beyond putting the fox in charge of the hen house. The U.N. Climate summit is supposed to be a space where the world holds polluters to account. But increasingly, it's being hijacked by those with opposing interests, they said. NBC News is reporting aides to President Biden have uncovered at least one additional batch of classified documents in a separate undisclosed location. This comes after news broke Monday that a first batch of classified materials were found in November in an office used by Biden after his vice presidency. CNN reported the initial documents contained intelligence related to Ukraine, Iran and the U.K. Those documents were handed over to the National Archives. 
In sports news, Buffalo Bills defensive player uh, Damar Hamlin has been released from the hospital to continue his recovery at home. His release came nine days after he suffered a cardiac arrest on the field and twice had to be resuscitated during a Monday night football game against the Cincinnati Bengals. In recent years, the NFL has faced increased scrutiny over player safety as more research links the full contact sport with concussion-related traumatic brain injury and other negative negative health outcomes. And in labor news here in New York City, over 7,000 nurses at Montefiore Bronx and Mount Sinai Hospital have returned to work, ending a three-day strike after reaching tentative deals with the hospitals on improving staffing ratios. The New York State Nurses Association Union had already won wage increases, but striking nurses at the two hospitals said the ongoing staffing shortages severely impacted patient care. You can see our interview yesterday with one of the striking nurses at democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Afghanistan. On Wednesday, at least five people died in a suicide bombing near the foreign ministry in Kabul. More than 40 people were wounded. The Islamic State claim responsibility. Meanwhile, pressure is growing on the ruling Taliban to reverse bans on women going to university or working with NGOs, non-governmental organizations. In recent weeks, a number of major international aid agencies have suspended operations in Afghanistan due to the ban. This could lead to an even greater humanitarian crisis there, where the United Nations estimates more than 28 million Afghans, or over 70 percent of the population, need humanitarian assistance. Over 1.1 million children aged under five are acutely malnourished. Some Afghan women have publicly spoken out against the Taliban's new policies. A university lecturer in Afghanistan named Bakshki recently spoke to Reuters, but asked to be only identified by her surname for security reasons. I'm so upset that according to the new decree of the Taliban, no women can continue their duties and activities as part of the society. And this situation that women have no place in Afghan society is so disappointing. I urge the international community not to abandon and forget Afghan women. Afghan women must not be sanctioned anymore. They must not be sentenced to imprisonment. When you talk about human rights, then please support them and do not abandon them. I kindly request all women not to lose hope and struggle for the rights that God and human society have given to them. We go now to Kabul. We're joined by Jan Eglin, the secretary general of the Independent Norwegian Refugee Council, which recently suspended operations in Afghanistan, like many aid groups. Jan Eglin traveled to Kabul this week to meet the Taliban to press them to reverse their ban on women working with NGOs. Uh, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, we just saw you tweeted that you weren't quite able to make it to Khandakar uh, because uh, of weather or plane service canceled to meet with the Taliban there. But you have been meeting with them in Afghanistan's capital. Can you talk about why you feel this is important to talk to them rather than isolate them? And what are your demands? Well, I'm here because we need to help the same 28 million people in need that the NATO countries left behind 
when they went for the door one and a half years ago. It's the same women and children, really. But the only way we can serve them, help them, save the lives of them is by using our female and male staff alike. So this uh, Taliban government that is now in charge has now an edict from their emir that they have been transmitting to all NGOs. It may go way beyond the NGOs, by the way, saying that all our female staff has to work, cannot work anymore. We stop work immediately. We neither can nor will provide humanitarian aid through males only. It would be bad aid. It wouldn't reach women. And it would also be fundamentally against our own values of equality between men and women. And Jan, your assessment of how these uh, conversations with uh, Taliban leaders have gone so far, if you could say uh, who exactly you met and what kind of response you've received to your demands. Well, we met, uh, I met the uh, Minister of Economy, who is the, the minister that transmitted the ban to us as NGOs. We are all registered under that ministry. I met the uh, Minister for Refugees and Repatriation, one of the Haqqani ministers. And I, I was meeting the Deputy Foreign Minister in the Foreign Ministry, where uh, to... 24 hours later, the, the bomb ex exploded that you referred to. All of the Taliban uh, leaders told me paradoxically that they agree with us. They agree that there should be education for women and girls. They agree that we sh should be able to employ female professionals as we, sh uh, as we need to. Uh, but they refer to Kandahar and the emir, and it's an edict from him, and they have to transmit it. At the same time, they say, we're working hard to have an, another decree that would enable your work to start working with males only. And we say, no, we have to wait until this new uh, decree comes that will enable male and females alike. Only then can we do principal humanitarian work here, even though for us, it's terrible to see so much suffering that we cannot anymore uh, 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 meet in this country. In fact, you were told that it's the, the decision was made by a single uh, Taliban leader and that most people whom you spoke to, Taliban members, did not agree with this decision. So do you think that makes it more likely that the decision will be reversed if it's coming just from one man? Well, but it's not any man, it's the emir, it's the, it's the supreme leader. Uh, it, it was so horribly frustrating today and yesterday. We've now tried for 36 hours uh, in spite of the snowstorms and minus 15 degrees Celsius and ice and snow to get there. But all, all uh, flights were cancelled. Were we even inside one of the planes when we had to turn back? Uh, because we need to go to Kandahar to meet the uh, Ulema Shura Council, the Council of uh, Islamic Scholars, so-called, that advised the emir. They were waiting for us. So was the governor of Kandahar who speaks to the emir. Uh, it, was, it was impossible. Uh, we will keep pushing. I've pushed now through Qatar, Turkey and Iran, who have 
representations here and in Kandahar and have influence, they will help. Uh, we, we urge anyone to help us, really, because we need, we, we need a reversal of these decisions. So, Jan Eglin, can you describe the situation on the ground? I assume you've spoken to a number of women on the ground, the, all of the aid organizations yep. that have suspended operations right now. What is the humanitarian crisis, the dimensions of it? Well, the unanimous view of the UN, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, the non-governmental organizations, are our own 1,500 aid workers that are now being paralyzed, is that the crisis is just catastrophic. It's a population in freefall, really. Uh, again, it's minus 15 Celsius. But people are out in the open. It's, people have been now hungry for months. Famine is coming with, and will engulf 6 million, is the estimation. Water and sanitation is lacking for people, uh, epidemic disease is threatening. It could be worse, really. And, 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 and at that point, we need to be enabled to do our work. So the ban on female education and female uh, workers is fundamental to enable effective work. But I think I've discussed before with you on Democracy Now!, we also need back development money. We need the frozen assets of the Af African people to be released for the people. There are a lot of things that it also uh, should pertain to the, the West that went for the door one and a half uh, years ago. Jan, are you the only uh, leader of uh, an international uh, NGO that is in conversation, who's in conversation with the Taliban? Are other uh, organizations who also suspended operations there attempting to speak to the Taliban? And you said Turkey, Iran and Qatar uh, are there placing pressure on the Taliban. Are there other countries doing the same? Yeah, there are also other Islamic countries. So when contact also with the United Arab Emirates, I, I think Saudi will also help. There, there is a lot of Islamic countries that are telling them that there is nothing in Islam against female education or against female work, as we also have, have uh, obeyed all of the traditional rules for the use of the hijab, mahram, I mean, male uh, chaperones on longer travel, the separation of uh, men and women in the workplace. We've done all of that. So, uh, yes, the Islamic countries can and will help us. I think the U.S. and Norway and others who still have uh, direct and indirect contacts with the Taliban need also to intensify uh, their uh, uh, diplomacy. I must say, I feel a little bit alone here as a, as a humanitarian. Why, why is it really only us here working for, 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 for the same millions of, of women and children that were so important for the NATO countries until one and a half years ago? And I'm the first to come. Many more will come from a humanitarian side and the UN side. But we need help from others. 
Yeah, and of course, there is this massive humanitarian crisis, which we've covered uh, extensively on the program, including with you, which is uh, worsening. But there is also, of course, you, you were there yesterday in Kabul. In fact, as you said, you uh, had uh, meetings at the Foreign Office itself, which is where the suicide attack happened. Could you describe the scene on the ground and also what you're hearing uh, about the levels of violence in uh, Afghanistan? Well, it's, I mean, there are these uh, attacks, uh, that it, 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 and it's bad, and it seems to be building. There is also tension uh, within the Taliban. There's many people who, who would like to have a moderate line. Of late, it's been the extremist line that has undertaken these edicts. A lot of tension. But again, we're here. I, I, I find it strange that there are not diplomats from more countries, including Western countries here. It's an important place, and it's a place where tens of millions are suffering. Um, I want to ask you about the refugee situation, because, Jan Eglund, you met with Afghanistan's Ministry of Refugees and Repatriation. Can you talk about prioritizing refugees and what's happening to them as they face discrimination in the U.S. and other countries, even those that work with the U.S. forces while they were there in Afghanistan trying to escape, um, and reports that Pakistan uh, is sending back hundreds of Afghan refugees as tens of thousands attempt to flee. Yeah, yeah indeed. I mean, the, the worse the crisis becomes from the Afghan people— the harder it is really to to escape the crisis, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to reach any of the neighboring countries. And the neighboring countries have returned people. Uh, and the NATO countries that employed so many here are not even willing to take many of them. I, I always get a lot of WhatsApp messages from former employees, uh, you know, interpreters, uh, guides, etc., uh, from NATO countries saying, why were not we uh, evacuated? Uh, why couldn't we escape? Uh, the, um, but, of course, the solution to Afghanistan's problems is in Afghanistan. It's, it's not that everybody leaves. So, again, I, I return to this point. We need to be able to do fully our work. And that means Taliban need to change their patterns, but we need also the resources and, and enabling environment. It's still very difficult to transfer even aid money to the country because of all of the financial transactions are so difficult because the banks are de-risking and fearing uh, sanctions that have largely been lifted for Afghanistan, but it's still difficult. Jan Eglund, we thank you for being with us, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, joining us from Kabul, where he has met with several Taliban officials. Next up, we look at a new investigation into how CIA-backed death squads killed hundreds of Afghan civilians in nighttime raids and the push for accountability. Stay with us.
Your dark shadow appears at the door by the Alex Weiss Quintet. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Deadly night raids based on faulty U.S. intelligence, then covered up by a classified war loophole. This is the focus of a major new investigation by reporter Lindsay Billing into CIA-backed Afghan special forces called Zero Units, which left a trail of civilian deaths across Afghanistan, but have yet to be held accountable after the U.S. ended its two-decade-long occupation. Lindsay Billing initially returned to Afghanistan to find out more about the deaths of her own mother and sister nearly 30 years earlier, but started to focus on the zero units night raids when she first heard eyewitness testimony. Over the next four years, she visited the sites of more than 30 raids in Afghanistan and interviewed hundreds of people, including survivors and families of victims. She also spoke to soldiers inside the zero units, who were the men tasked with killing their own compatriots on U.S. orders. In this clip from a forthcoming ProPublica documentary, two of them, Basir and Hadi, described their work in 2019 in Afghanistan's Logar province, near the forward operations base Shank. To protect their safety, their words are spoken by actors. I'm a member of Afghanistan's zero unit in the east of the country. As intelligence comes in, the raid is conducted. It is our commander who gives us information. We just have the shooting order. Those are two soldiers with the so-called zero units in Afghanistan describing their work to reporter Lindsay Billing in her new expose for ProPublica, The Night Raids. She's joining us now from Istanbul, Turkey. She's an investigative journalist who's been reporting on Afghanistan since 2019. Born in Afghanistan, she is a British journalist. We welcome you, Lindsay, to Democracy Now! Can you talk about, lay out the findings of your piece, just who these zero units are. And in fact, you going there, not exactly to investigate this story, but actually your own family and what happened to them. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, this story really started in early 2019 when I went back to Afghanistan um, to look into my past and, and what had happened to my family. And um, it was in Nangaha province in the east of the country um, where I'd met a distant relative and I was investigating the deaths of my mother in, in a raid there that had happened decades earlier um, where I met a woman called Mazala. And she was a widow and she was in her 50s and she was... Uh, by herself because she was telling me this story of a night raid that had killed um, her two only children. And after meeting her and, and seeing this, um, she, was, she was just at a complete loss as what to do. And um, she really kind of turned to me as, as a foreigner to help her try understand what had happened to her sons. And so after hearing her story, I just felt this huge responsibility to look into 
who was conducting these operations um, in remote and rural areas uh, of Afghanistan. And that's when I kind of stumbled across the Zero Units, which are squadrons of Afghan special forces um, who were trained and funded and equipped by the CIA and who were joined on their operations by um, American special operations forces members also, and, and at times, depending on the operation, CIA advisors. Um, and these were um, counterterrorism operations. The zero units were sent after um, perceived threats against the United States. So first Taliban and in later years, ISKP also. And so I started just hearing more and more reports of um, people who from people who'd lost loved ones in these operations and uh, started to realize that they um, while at some times they were uh, successfully um, targeting uh, militants that they were also getting it wrong. And Lindsay, what did you learn about why, uh, when the units were established, how many units there were, how many Afghans uh, and uh, American special forces uh, were members of these units? And then explain why you chose to focus on one of them, uh, Zero Two. Yeah, so there's four known Zero Unit squadrons, um, and they're based regionally across the country. And um, as you say, I focused on the O2, which was in the east, uh, in Nangarhar, their, their base is in Jalalabad. Um, but they were also going on operations in, in neighboring provinces also. Um, and I, I started to focus on the O2 because the the more and more reports that I kept hearing of, of um, civilian casualties and, and botched operations, there was just a huge number coming from the O2. Uh, and also because I was in Nangarhar initially and there was, I just felt like there was pockets of Nangarhar that were um, at that time when, when this all started in, in early 2019, um, they, they were not being reached by um, a lot of media reporters. They, they were... Um, really inaccessible areas and there was this increase in fighting going on and it was really a hot spot for these operations they were when it started they were going out nearly every night um so it, it was really tracking these operations in in real time um and that's why um i i really felt like i needed to to speak with soldiers who were inside the o2 um and I, I wanted to understand um, from them why they were going on these operations on, on U.S. orders and why they were targeting their own countrymen. How, how did they feel when they went wrong? And I mean, these were huge operations. These are, um, you know, 80 men on a night raid, um, of which 10 to 12 Americans were often joining, they were telling me. And... Um, huge convoys they had access to to air power as well um, US air power um, and there was just they were so active in Nangarhar and everyone knew 
who the zero units were. They knew what they wore. They knew how um, there was. They were. They were very greatly feared, and yet they didn't know um, who was behind them, who was compiling the intelligence, who was building these targeting packages and and sending them out to target what was turning out to be um, uh, student, university students, teachers, and farmers. Um, and so people were really left with without answers to, to what was happening on these operations. And Lindsay, explain, I mean, you actually managed to speak uh, to these two. We played a clip earlier of Basir and, and Hadi. Uh, how did you get them to speak to you, first of all? And what was uh, uh, especially striking to you about what they said in your conversations with them? Um, oh, I think it was... It was probably about six months after I started looking for for soldiers inside the O2 to talk to that I that I first met um, Basir and Hardy, and um, at first they they were hesitant to talk to me. They they didn't quite understand why I wanted to talk to them, um, and I I guess over time there was and they began to trust me. Um, and that I did want to hear their perspective on what they were doing and, and also their background, which played a big role into why they joined these operations and uh, these units initially. Um, and they they really kind of started opening up over time and um, there was a lot of pain and, and guilt with what they were doing and also a lot of confusion as, as to their role within this setup and the structure of, of the zero units who were, were nominally under the Afghan intelligence agency, but um, were under the umbrella of the CIA program as well. Um, and they they really, I, I think initially, there was one, I remember one specific meeting where they told me about one operation um, that had killed civilians and that had not resulted in the death, in, in, uh, finding the Taliban that they were looking for on that operation, and this kind of frustration from their part, where they weren't the ones who could who could talk about it, and they were not writing up the after action reports. It was a senior commanding officer who was doing it, and they weren't sure if anyone was even going to find out about the civilians killed in these operations. It was it was something out of their hands. Um, yeah, Lindsay, you spoke to a man named Spingar who says he was shot three times when he was 12 years old by two soldiers, um, two soldiers outside their base in Jalalabad. Yeah, um, and Spingar was—I met Spingar just this last year. Um, actually, by coincidence, um, and it, this was— you know, the U.S. had now left Afghanistan and so much had changed over the course of, of this investigation and, and very quickly for everyone. But he um, he was really uh, he really stuck with me because when I met him, he had received he had been shot, as you say, three times uh, outside his home, which was right next to the base in Jalalabad, the, the O2 base. And um he had been encouraged to file, you know, file papers for compensation or a compensation claim, and he, uh, for his injuries, had been treated at the base in Jalalabad and also background base, and um, he had filed these papers, uh, and he had received a letter back um, 
and I it was written in English and he didn't speak English uh, he didn't read English and it had uh, declined to give him compensation for his injuries and he had been waiting so long to hear um, if he was going to get this compensation for what had happened and in, in this uh, it, on that occasion um, and he really stuck with me because this is long after the US has left and there were still people in Afghanistan who um, are waiting to hear back on on promises of, of compensation and, and things they'd been encouraged to pursue. Um, and this operation targeted him when he was 12, um, although on the form uh, it was written that he was 14. But he just uh, felt like this really like telling symbol um, for me for me as to what really was left behind. So I um, wanted to ask you about... Um who is behind uh, these zero units, and particularly why, for example, um, that uh, these raids are conducted by the CIA and not the military? Um, what kind of loophole and lack of reporting, investigation, or accountability that leads to? Well, there's a, a very—it's a very murky area that these units fall into, um, precisely as you say, because they're not U.S. military counterterrorism operations. Um, because they fall under the CIA, they don't fall under the usual U.S. law um, that would apply to the military or Title X. Um, and the U.S. Special Operations Forces soldiers joining these operations also don't fall under the same U.S. laws. Um, because these are now covert action operations. This is a title fifth. This is title fifty. Um, so there is this complete legal loophole into into um, them not receiving the same oversight and scrutiny that U.S. military operations would. Um, and Lindsay, talk about. I mean, you also uh, uh, spoke to uh, a, a U.S. Army Ranger uh, who told you, who, who conceded that these uh, uh, night raids had terrible effects, though he said that they were preferable to airstrikes, saying to you, you go on right night raids, make more enemies, then you got to go on more night raids for the more enemies you now have to kill. So you spoke to him. You also look in the piece at the historical antecedents, the use uh, by the U.S. of night raids. What did you understand about why uh, uh, Americans, the U.S. military and CIA, uh, use this particular method and have for decades? Yeah, I mean, they've been using it uh, for decades. It's uh Using the night raid strategy um, since the since 1967, when they were um, uh, doing these operations or capture kill operations um, against the Viet Cong in South Vietnam and and through Iraq, in which they were were claimed as having major successes in, in targeting insurgencies and militants. Um, and yet that's not that's not the result that we see through our reporting and that's not the result that came out afterwards but it was it's this repeatedly used strategy um that has failed time and time again and that has not had um a full account uh, a full accounting of it or or what the fallout from these operations is 
And finally, what you feel, um, speaking to so many people, their attitude toward the United States with the number of deaths uh, that have not been held accountable and our families applying, do they know ways to uh, I mean, reach really, out? Yeah, I mean, this is really uh, the legacy that America has left behind in Afghanistan. Many people I spoke to feel that these operations um, had actually had the reverse, were counterproductive and actually had turned their families against the U.S.-backed government in Kabul and against the U.S. And they will, if this same strategy is used in, in new conflicts and new wars, um, without someone looking at their tactics and saying, what what is the failures of this here? We're having failures of intelligence. Um, then they will have the same fallout in other countries. And you will see a blowback the same as you have in Afghanistan, um, which is the way that people view the, the U.S. precisely because of witnessing years of these operations. And Lindsay, finally, uh, you conclude your piece uh, by saying, in the end, I got closure from my own personal story from the unlikeliest source, uh, Basir. Explain what you found out, uh, what happened to your mother and to your sister, and uh, why you say that Basir provided you with this closure. I, I didn't get all the answers that I was looking for with what had happened to my family. Um, but I do feel, and, and I think that that is really uh, in part something that we see in Afghanistan in general, which is that one family's of loss and tragedy is replaced by another as one war bleeds into the next and, and it gets covered up. And so mine, what happened to my family was so long ago now and then I, what happened with the families I was meeting in 2019 up and you know over the last few years was a recent conflict but um, they I think that with Basir the reason I felt some level of closure with it was because although he what he he hadn't targeted my family and and he hadn't killed them there was an understanding from him that kind of surfaced over time and through our regular meetings and conversations over time, um, this understanding that he had of, of what the real true human cost of these operations was and how everyone was affected from the families and survivors through to the soldiers conducting these operations also. And so there was something about him reaching that understanding that helped me feel um, it really loosened a little something in me to feel a bit of, of closure with um, seeing that kind of remorse of what he had done. Well, Lindsay Billing, we want to thank you so much for being with us, investigative journalist who's been reporting on Afghanistan since 2019. We'll link to your piece in ProPublica that's headlined simply The Night Raids. Lindsay, speaking to us from Istanbul, Turkey. We go now to California, where the death toll has risen to 19 as heavy storms and flooding continue to devastate much of the state. We'll speak with a UCLA climate scientist. Stay with us.
Ex Bolero by the legendary guitarist Jeff Beck, who died Tuesday at the age of 78. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. In California, at least 19 people have died as storms continue to batter the region, leading to widespread flooding, mudslides and power outages. Thousands of residents have been ordered to evacuate in some areas, including parts of Santa Barbara and Monterey County. Five million people in California remain under a flood watch. The National Weather Service says large portions of central California have received over half their annual normal precipitation in just the past two weeks, and more rain is coming. Santa Cruz County Supervisor Zach Friend has described the storms as a, quote, once-in-a-generational challenging event. In San Miguel, California, the National Guard is joined in the effort to find a five-year-old boy named Kyle Dome, who was swept away by the floodwaters Monday. Meteorologists say California is being hit with what's known as an atmospheric river of rain, which has unleashed unrelenting storms. Meanwhile, Media Matters reports national TV news is largely ignoring the link between climate change and the deluge devastating California. The group looked at 60 segments that aired on national TV news networks between December 31st and January 4th, only one mentioned climate change. To talk more about the storms in California, we're joined by Daniel Swain, climate scientist at UCLA, author of Weather West, the California Weather Blog. He's also research fellow at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and at the Nature Conservancy. Daniel, welcome back to Democracy Now! Okay, can you talk about what's happening in California right now and how it links to climate change? Thanks for having me. Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, California has been experiencing now a multi-week period of a very heavy precipitation, uh, really from a sequence of strong storm events, uh, some of which have been what are known as atmospheric rivers, which are these corridors of highly concentrated atmospheric water vapor uh, moving quickly through the atmosphere. So California hasn't been experiencing an atmospheric river uh, continuously for multiple weeks, but this, the, the net result of uh, multiple storms over the past several weeks has been to produce uh, pretty significant flood impacts uh, in certain parts of California that have unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, turned deadly. And so, uh, Daniel Swain, could you talk about the way in which these uh, storms, uh, these extreme weather events are being interpreted and how it's possible to look at them without looking at human-induced uh, climate change? Yes, I think, I think what's clear uh, from a climate science perspective at, at this point is that all weather events are evolving in the context of a changed climate. Uh, that, that is just the reality of the world we live in today. The question is really, to what extent uh, is, is climate change influencing certain kinds of events, not really whether it is in the first place. It's really a question of how much. Uh, and in this case, we know that the primary link between climate change and extreme precipitation events is through a fairly basic uh, fundamental principle of atmospheric thermodynamics. Um, that sounds complicated, but it really just comes down to the fact that the atmosphere has a much higher capacity to hold water vapor when it's warmer. In fact, the increase in the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere is exponential, even for a, a linear or an incremental warming. So this is this is a pretty profound effect because it raises effectively the ceiling on how intense precipitation can become. 
by about 4% per degree Fahrenheit or 7% per degree centigrade of global warming. And so today we're at about 1.2 degrees or so centigrade of global warming. We're at the point where perhaps 10 to 15 percent of the intensity of any given extreme precipitation event uh, on average can probably be attributed to global warming. And of course, that number is going to vary from event to event and region to region. But as a ballpark estimate, that 10 to 15 percent increase in the magnitude of, of extreme precipitation events can have really large effects already. And could you explain one of the things that uh, seems surprising about what's uh, uh, happening in California is that, of course, this is a state that has suffered from massive drought uh, over the last several years. So how do these things go together? On the one hand, drought. On the other hand, this extraordinary level of rain. Well, there is, first of all, uh, a bit of a silver lining here, which is that, of course, uh, with all of this rain, uh, the severity of the California drought is is decreasing with with each passing week. Of course, in the long run, they don't just simply counterbalance each other, the, the extreme dry and moving immediately to extreme wet. There are lots of reasons why it's not a an equal and opposite response. Um, but in this part of the world, there's actually an expectation that climate change will bring about an increase in what I like to term hydroclimate or precipitation whiplash, if you will. The site, this notion that uh, the the variability uh, from season to season and year to year of precipitation in California is already high at, at background, but it is getting higher in a warming climate. So in other words, we're seeing even greater swings between uh, extremely wet and extremely dry conditions and vice versa in this part of the world. And our own work suggests that uh, human-caused climate change is is amplifying that effect. And that's really leading to some significant management challenges because, as you might imagine, uh, the ways of coping with extremes on both ends of the spectrum are different than if you were just perennially getting drier or wetter. Uh, if you have both to deal with, it's definitely more complicated. So, Daniel Swain, what do you expect California's weather to look like in the future? Uh, and is it a harbinger for the rest of the country? Well, California uh, certainly has a climate that is uh, distinct uh, from the rest of the United States. It has what's known as a Mediterranean climate, which, as you might expect, is similar to the climate of um, the Mediterranean itself and other similar zones around the world. So what's happening there is a little bit different than what we might expect to see elsewhere. But I think there are some generalities uh, that we can we can uh, reasonably assume, which is that, of course, it's getting warmer. Temperatures themselves are rising. We're seeing on average, uh, freezing levels during winter that are creeping up the mountainsides, although this winter has brought a fairly exceptional snowpack. So we've seen an extreme snowfall event this winter. So things are getting warmer there, and we're seeing both more extreme precipitation events on the one hand, which is essentially happening everywhere, but also more severe droughts on the other hand. And that's not necessarily happening everywhere, but it is happening in many places. And so I think the things that, that, that people are surprised are happening in California, the, the, the increase in extreme precipitation events, that's something that's, that's perhaps less surprising in other places because we've seen even larger increases. So we think about the eastern half of the United States, for example, and the increases in, in extreme rainfall events and, flood, and flash flood events over the past few decades has been uh, considerably more dramatic. So even though California is a place more recently accustomed to drought and water scarcity and wildfire, all of which are also increasing in California in a warming climate, don't get me wrong, 
Um, it's a place that also needs to be dealing with the opposite extreme, the, that of extreme precipitation and the potential for an increase in the risk of severe flooding. And in fact, our own work uh, published uh, in summer of 2022 suggests that climate change has already doubled the risk of a widespread severe flood event in California. Uh, I think that comes much as a surprise to folks who are more accustomed to dealing with the opposite problem in recent years. And finally, Daniel, if you could talk about what you're anticipating just in the next days in California. Uh, so in the short term, we are expecting that at least for the next five to seven days, this very active and rainy pattern will continue. So there will likely be some amount of further flooding uh, with another strong storm due in on Saturday. There is uh, some relief on the horizon uh, about eight or nine days out. It looks like the pattern will relent and things will dry out and that'll give California a much needed chance to uh, for rivers to recede and for folks in the mountains to dig out of snowbanks. Um, so, but, but there may yet be some additional flooding and some additional landslides and things like that over the next week. So uh, it may get a little worse before it gets better, uh, but there hopefully uh, is an end uh, in sight. Daniel Swain, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Climate scientist at UCLA, author of Weather West, the California weather blog. He's also a research fellow at NCAR. That's the National Center for Atmospheric Research, where he is right now in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, in fact, NCAR is a renowned climate research center that was almost burned to the ground by a climate-fueled wildfire. That does it for our show. Uh, Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dean Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Mary Conlon. Our executive directors, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. To see other climate stories that Democracy Now! has focused on in our coverage of the U.N. Climate Summit recently in Egypt, go to democracynow.org. Tomorrow, we will look at the new film, Argentina, 1985. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.